You can go to your New Testament. In just a moment, I'm going to be reading from the book of Hebrews. And we'll be reading out of Hebrews chapter 3. And this is our third installment in our teaching series that we entitled Embrace the Grace. We've been endeavoring to share with you the full picture of what the grace of God is all about. We want you to really understand what God's grace in your life and our life really means. And we've been spending time and developing certain themes on this. And you can catch up, obviously, by going to the website and catching all of that by iTunes if you want to catch up with what we've been sharing. Uh, this week, I received uh, in the mail a movie that I had ordered. It was entitled Wesley. I'm kind of a Wesley fan. And uh, I saw that there was a new movie that was out and they, uh, they had it ready for purchase for DVD. And so I went ahead and made a purchase. It came to me. I was able to sit down and watch it. And, um, you, know, I, you know, Hollywood just never puts the right passion in the right spots. You know, it gets the sexual tension down, but it never gets the real spiritual stuff down. And, uh, you know, Wesley had some issues with a young lady in Georgia, which they seemed to dwell on a lot, but they didn't get the fact that here was a world changer. And uh, so I was a little disappointed with the movie, but I was reminded, at least watching it once again, that you can be in the ministry as Wesley was. You can, you can even be a missionary. You can be in Georgia, you can be doing the work of the Lord, you can be doing all of these things and it brought no peace to his heart, it brought no joy into his life, and it wasn't until he ran into a group of Moravian missionaries and they were to share with him about being justified by grace through faith that uh, his heart was strangely warmed. And so uh, as far as that went, it was, it was a great movie and, and a great historical reminder of the powerful transforming work of grace that can take place in a person's life. Many of you also know the story of a man by the name of John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader for many years in the 18th century. It was a despicable practice as he would uh, begin to gather up uh, Africans and send them, whether it be to England or over to the Americas. Despicable practice. In fact, there was a judgment that came upon John Newton's life I believe, for this, this practice where he himself in turn became a slave. And uh, he was put into a cage as a human being, literally led about as a dog. But the grace of God came to John Newton. And he was radically, suddenly transformed. And for those of you that don't know the name, he is the author of Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. And God used him along with Wilberforce in order to ban the despicable slave practices in England. And uh, God used him mightily. But it was the grace of God that transformed and changed him and rearranged him. And I could literally tell you story after story after story of people who have been touched by the grace of God. Some of you in this room this morning are those stories. I don't know what you were doing, where you were going, but you know your testimony and you were headed in a bad, wrong, terrible direction. But God intervened. Amen. You didn't find God. He found you one day. And he reached into your heart and pulled out that old heart of stone and softened you up and you heard the good news and you opened up your heart to him and you were radically changed. And so grace is truly amazing. It draws. It woos. I like the term wooing. Anybody ever heard the word wooing before I said it to be wooed? Some of us like to be wooed. God woos us to himself. The Bible says that as he does that, he begins to melt the human heart. Psalm twenty-two, fourteen. It says, my heart is like wax. It has melted within me. And so God wants to melt our hearts. And there have been some like 
Calvin who said that when His grace comes to us, His grace was irresistible. That's what Calvin said. You could not resist the grace of God because he had a tremendous view of God's sovereignty. Who can stop God? Who can, who can shut Him down? God does what He wants to do. And, and that's why there's a certain group of believers who state that if, if a believer, or I put that in quotation marks, if a believer ever turns their back on God, the explanation to them is that they were never saved in the first place. Because if the grace of God touches you, then, then truth be told, uh, it'll change you forever. And that's, that's nice, and I understand how they get to that place. But truth of the matter is, I've met a lot of people through the years that have loved God for a lot of years. And suddenly, somewhere along the path, something changes. They lose their fire, they lose their fervor, they lose their passion. And something just stops. Now, my intention today is not to uh, really undermine or to untangle how that works totally in people's lives with regards to their security. I understand that, that there are many, many, many people that teach eternal security, and, and this sermon is not on eternal security. I know everybody's got their verse to prove their side of whatever argument they want. So my, my intention here today is not to somehow undermine concepts of security and assurance or confidence. So, so I get I get it. So don't try to teach me. I get it. I know where I'm landing. I've studied this, this for years. But, but I want to just touch this point within our teaching on grace that, that we got to understand a few things that the Bible still clearly says. Because experience as well as the Word of God has shown me that apostasy, in fact, that word apostasy is literally in the Greek, in several locations of Scripture is, is found. And, and we can talk about how apostasy, and we will talk about that in just a moment. But apostasy, as best as I can describe it, is the hardening of one's heart towards God's grace. And is that possible or not? The answer I've come to is yes. You can harden yourself, harden the heart off to where God no longer seems to be able to penetrate or get through to you. The Bible, the Bible has various synonyms with regards to this. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, uses the phrase, a reprobate mind. That's his phrase. There's another phrase that he uses when he writes to Timothy at Ephesus, and he says that there will be some whose consciences are seared. It's another phrase. And then... We find the writer in the book of Hebrews literally using the phrase, a hardened heart. A hardened heart. And so I want to just talk about that because if you want God's favor, if you want, if you want just unmerited favor and grace and help to come to your life, you've got to understand that you've got to keep a soft heart. Because if your heart gets hardened, then His grace suddenly can be stopped. And I'm going to show you how that works within the scripture. And I've called the message this morning. I've entitled it. You've lost that love and feeling. Any of you remember that old song? You've lost that love and feeling. I always want to sing. Oh, that love and feeling. We're getting to the good part. You lost that love and feeling. It's a good part because it's. What? Whoa. How is it? Do, do, do. And then the bass player gets in there. It's cool. And that's why, isn't it, isn't it great how songs, you won't remember this sermon 30 minutes from now, but you'll remember that song. What does that say? Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, I'm going to start with. If you have your Bibles, you ought to. Crack it open. If not, you can watch the screen overhead. Hebrews 3, beginning with verse 7, we read, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. And they have not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren. Beware, brethren. Who's the brethren? 
Come on now. The brethren ain't out there. The brethren's here, right? It says, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He says it twice. And how many of you know, if somebody's saying something twice in the Bible, we best pay attention. Now, what does it mean to be hardened in your heart? I think. As we begin to study it, there are several concepts I just want to throw out here real quick. The meanings of to be hardened mean things like to be firm or to be stiff. And so, in fact, sometimes the Bible says that, that people are stiff-necked, which means they're unyielding or unbroken. There's uh, the concept of being stubborn as well. And it certainly leaves you with the impression that if this is indeed the case, a hardening of the heart, then your heart somehow is becoming callous or it is becoming unyielding. Now, practically, and I believe I put this on the screen overhead, and, and you'll want to get a hold of this. You may want to write this down. In fact, can I just encourage you, if you've got a pen, if you can find a piece of paper, grab one of those things in the card rack and write on the back, because there are going to be several things that I'm going to share with you this morning that I believe are noteworthy. I'm not often a big you know, proponent, and I'm not running my own stuff up the flagpole and waving it at you, but every now and then I believe that there are some things you need to write down. You need to see it, hear it, and write it down. And those of you that have young children or, or youth-aged children, you need to get a hold of this, parents. You need to write it down because they probably won't write it down. So you need to write this stuff down because I'm telling you, it will literally save your life. This is the morning that I will save or God will save through the voice of pastor. I can save people's lives. If you will begin to hear what it is that God says in his word and you'll begin to take this seriously. Practically, what does it mean to have a hardened heart? Practically, it is when a person no longer feels, senses or desires the activity of grace. Or the anointing. Or God. However God interacts with us in their life. There is no want to inside of a person to respond to God as he draws and invites. I'm going to leave that on the screen now. Just, you ought to write that down. It's when a person no longer feels, senses, or desires the activity of grace. Anointing. Or God in their life. There's no want to inside a person to respond to God as he's drawing them. Now, remember, you can't initiate anything towards God. You remember that lesson? Remember that you didn't find God. He found you. You didn't wake up one morning deciding today was the day you're going to get right with God. God decided today was the day. He's the one that releases grace. You you didn't know him. You were blind. You were living in, in a darkened situation. And it was God who turned on the light. It was God who drew you back to himself. It was God who reached out to you in that moment. And your heart was pounding. And you knew something was going on inside of you. And suddenly you just said, yes. Yes. But there can come a moment in a hardened heart where we no longer feel that anymore. We no longer sense that anymore. We don't even desire that much anymore. Now, obviously, hardening doesn't happen instantly. Nothing hardens instantly, not even cement. In fact, the ING at the end of the word of harden tells us that this is not necessarily an instantaneous thing. I'm sure there are degrees of hardness. I'm sure even within this room this morning, if we could somehow open up people's chest and look at their hearts, and as we began to evaluate certain uh, receptivities of people's hearts, I'm sure we could maybe spiritually try to codify it some way, somehow. This one's a little harder than that one. This one's softer than this one. So, so there can be degrees, I'm quite sure, of these things. And I'm equally sure that time plays some part in how callous or how hard a person becomes. Now, the best biblical illustration in all of the scriptures that I have ever found is the guy by the name of Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh, the Bible tells us, hardened his heart when Moses came declaring the word of the Lord, wanting to bring the Jewish people out of Egyptian captivity. In fact, the Bible actually says that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. I started to think about that again, and I said to myself, well, how in the world does that work? I mean, God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. I mean, is it like that God suddenly looks at somebody and he says, you know, I'm just going to start infusing you with, with a rebellion, or I'm going to infuse you with, with stubbornness or stiffness or hardness. And I started to just think about these things. And I said, no, I don't believe that's the heart of God. I, I believe God wants to melt people's hearts and bring them back to himself. But you've got one scripture that says God hardened his heart. And then you have this other scripture that says God wants to melt hearts. How does this all work together? Well, what happens is as people reject the grace and the mercy of God. Listen to me. This is very important. Save your life now. As people reject the grace and the mercy of God, what happens is, is the scripture says he begins to withdraw that from you. You see, your heart all of our hearts, my heart, your heart, all of our hearts are naturally hard towards God. That's how we're born. We're born in darkness. We're born blind. We're born alienated, hard towards God. It's the grace of God. And he uses all different sorts of ways to begin to awaken us and draw us. But so hard is normal. So what he does is, is that as, as we reject his overtures, as we reject his grace, as we say, nope, don't want it, not interested in it, as we reject that, what happens is he allows us to begin to move back to normal. He says, you want to be normal? I'll let you be normal. It's his grace that keeps us soft. It's his grace that keeps us tender. It's our grace that keeps our heart open. So, so Pharaoh was not made worse by God. But rather, every time Pharaoh had opportunity to respond to Moses, you know the story. You know how many times Moses had to come to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh wouldn't do it. And he wouldn't do it. And he wouldn't do it. And he wouldn't do it. He heard the word. He heard the word. He heard the word. And he just kept saying, no, 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 no. And every time he'd heard the word and said no, every time he had opportunity to respond to Moses, to obey God's voice, every time there was a plague that God would use in order to crack Pharaoh's heart, he just kept saying, no, no, I will not let the people go. And so what happened? The Spirit of God withdrew from him. Now hear me. How many plagues must come to our homes? How many accidents? How many, how many wake-up calls? How many two-by-fours up the side of the head? How many things have to come to your life in, in just by way of circumstance that God, that God orchestrates that will finally cause you one more time to awaken to the grace of God? How many accidents will you drive by and say, I'm glad I wasn't in that one, not realizing God did something to keep you from being in that one? But we keep saying, no, 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 no. Until finally what happens is God says, I'll withdraw. Now listen to me. Don't, don't be upset at God. God's been trying to draw like crazy. Until finally He says, you want it your way? You got it. You got it. It's all about you. Now Paul says, interestingly, he says this will be a feature in the last days. Post 1 Timothy 4.2. It says that in last days there will be those who will speak lies in hypocrisy that will have their own consciences seared with a hot iron. In other words, they will have, they will have resisted and they will have walked in untruths for so long their consciences no longer respond to the dealings of God. Uh, Post-Romans 1.28, it says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind or a reprobate mind to do those things which are not fitting. So there was a moment God finally said, here, you, you want your way? Have it. I'd say that's the, to me, the most frightening scenario in all of the scriptures. And we can talk about judgment and fire and hell. And I mean, all those things I think are weighty matters. But for me, I think the most frightening part of all the scripture is that God would ever look at me and just simply say, you're on your own. That's scary to me. You're on your own. You wanted it your way. You want to do life your direction. You want to go your way. Hey, it's all yours. Don't worry. I won't bug you about it anymore. 
I won't speak to your heart. I won't send you conviction. I won't do anything that will cause you to think I just, I'll leave it alone. Now, as I was thinking about all this, because, because I'm one that wants the grace of God in my life. I mean, I need all the favor I can get. I don't know about you. You just look at me. He needs favor. That man needs favor. I need all the favor I can get from the Lord. God knows I can mess things up. I need his favor. But the question is, if, if, if I start going down this path, what does it look like? Because I don't want to go down this path. And sometimes it's good to know what that looks like, lest I find myself in some deception of some form and find myself moving down a path that I really don't want to be on. Now, I want to share with you, what does it look like in the life of a person that's hardening? Let me just suggest some things. I believe that there's no longer any spiritual sensitivity to the Lord. There's no conviction. There's no tears. There's no fear of the Lord anymore. Can I just share with you, this is, this is just observations. There's no judgment in any of this. But we are living in a day where people come to altars and they, and they receive the Lord or they're wanting God to deal with them. And there's no tears anymore. Now, I'm glad people are moving towards the Lord, but it's amazing to me how the scripture speaks of tears so often. But we don't see we are in a tearless generation. There's no sorrow. There's no godly sorrow. I think that's an indicator. I'm just saying these are indicators that somehow something's not melting anymore inside of us. There's no fear of the Lord anymore. I will assure you of that. We'll come to the house of God and we'll raise our hands on Sunday and we'll be sinning left and right on Monday. There's no fear of God anymore. There's no desire for his word, his ways. I really don't want him working in my life. I mean, I'm just throwing out some concepts about how you begin to discern if hardening is beginning to happen in your life. I started to think about how songs and sermons that once moved you really don't do all that much for you anymore. In fact, some of you, you can think of songs, even worship songs that that have been sung. And there was a day when that song was sung and, and, and you'd close your eyes and you'd lift your arms. There was something that started happening to you. And I mean, you're, you're, the tears just came from nowhere. And there was something at that moment of God that just started to move on you. But you can sing those songs and, and hear those words. And it just doesn't do much anymore. You know, we have the best preaching in America, bar none throughout the whole world. And we still kind of yawn and we're bored. I mean, Laura and the gang are up here and really doing their best to, to bring a, a, an excellent presentation and worship and helping us to connect with God. And we just, we just kind of go, I dare you to move me. You see, it's not them. See, this is the church in America. We're always running for our next thing, thinking it's them. I'm going to go somewhere else to hear a message because I'm not getting fed anymore because it's him. I'm going to go to this place because they've got a better band and I like the, I like the sound and, and the role. And they, I, I, you see, it's just, I can't get anything here because it's them. It's them. It's them. I can't go to that church. It's them. It's them. I'm going to clue you into something. It's not them. It's a hard heart. Spiritual discipline is, is, is drudgery. It's boring. I don't, I don't want to do prayer. I mean, that was so encouraging when, when Pastor Noah shared there were 65 here. In, in, I mean, we're pushing towards 75 people and then we'll set 100. I'm believing that you can grow a church on intercession and worship. I believe that. But these things, these things, oh, well, you know, prayer, that's not, I mean, I'd rather have, I'd rather have technology than intercession. I'd rather, I'd rather have something out here that, that, that kind of gives me an experience outside of any spiritual disciplines. That's why the church of today has developed a greater need to be entertained and amused 
Even as we come to church, don't misunderstand what, what I'm saying. I, you saw the lights here. I, I, I like the lights. I think it provides some ambiance. And, and I like using clips from films on occasion. And we'll do skits. And I like all of these things. I think they can be used. And they're viable to communicate the gospel to people. But can I just share with you kind of back behind the scenes what I get concerned about? I get concerned that we're reaching a place where we do these things because we've just simply lost the love and feeling and we got to have something that can stir some emotion inside of us so we program some more lights and we, we get some more sounds and we get some new instruments and we, we do some new film thing and, and we do all of these things and all of a sudden we're still empty. And we say to ourselves, I, just, I, don't, get, I don't get anything out of it anymore. And that's why we... As pastors, I believe this, we, we provide lights and sounds and movie clips and videos and we do PowerPoint. And as I said, there's nothing wrong with these things. We are trying to capture the hearts of those that have grown hard to prayer, that have grown hard to worship, that have grown hard to the Word. We're trying to figure out some way you crack through people's hard hearts to get them to feel something again. Trying to get folks to tap into a feeling somewhere because we don't seem to be able to sense God anymore. Why? Why can't we sense God anymore? Why do we do all these things? How in the world did the church in the book of Acts see 3,000 people come to the Lord one day, 5,000 two days later, and they didn't have a strobe light one? It wasn't like Peter was there with a candle going... How could they have survived? It's, their hearts are hard. Their consciences are seared. My greatest concern, I've said this so many times, I feel like I'm just belaboring the point. But my greatest concern is this next generation of young people. I've got young people too. But what we've done is we've desensitized them to everything at a very early age. We've desensitized them to violence. I mean, you can take them to the movies that some go to, and they can see special effects and, 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 and Hollywood techniques that provide more gore and blood and reality than any of us would have ever seen in a lifetime. I mean, there's a, there's a movie, I've never watched it, I've just read the reviews on it. There's a movie that has had six sequels called Saw. And all it has to do with, from beginning to end, is people getting sawed. Now, I don't know that I'd spend ten bucks six times to see that. But obviously, a lot of people are. Why is that? It's because we are desensitized. It's the enemy's plan, really, to desensitize us and to become so hardened in our consciences that we no longer can be even pricked by the Holy Ghost anymore, even when we come to the house of God. You can get video games and you can shoot people and blood comes out all over the place. We've desensitized the generation to the sensual. I mean, it's just, I'm just, I'm saying to myself, there's no way around it. It's the, it's the air we live in, but you can't go through the mall and not go by Victoria's Secret. And that's just pornography. At least it was about 20 years ago. You go to Abercrombie and Fitch or to Hollister and all of these places that we go and, and, and we don't even think about it anymore. We just don't even, we don't even conceive of this thing. Furthermore, we pretty much dress like a lot of that. And we just bought into the whole thing and we have desensitized ourselves to the place where if someone like me would even suggest that you consider that that might not be good, you look at me like I've lost my mind. No, my mind is renewed. Maybe there's a conscience here that's been seared. Cell phones, chat rooms, Facebook. Cameras, texting, have desensitized us to any feeling. We don't talk anymore. We text to one another. We, we don't have to talk. I don't have to talk to anybody. Am I against texting? I'm not against texting. But do you realize we don't even have conversations anymore? We just text away. 
And you know what that does? It desensitizes us to anyone around us to where we'll say anything. And, and by the way, we'll do just about anything on that phone because we can do it in the privacy of our own rooms. We'll do anything on a computer because we can do it in the privacy of our own rooms. You see, you no longer have to have to sort of dress up and, and, and hide yourself to go down to the little quick store to get yourself one of those girly magazines and hope nobody sees you anymore. Oh, no, you can just go to your bedroom and you can just plug it in and you can get it and no one ever knows. And we keep living this way as we're raising our hands and we're asking for God to move. And the whole time we're hardening our hearts. Are we really surprised? Are we really surprised when we read that one more time a mom has killed her children? We thought Susan Smith was an anomaly. Just a crazed bipolar, schizophrenic woman in an anomaly that killed her children and now we're facing it again. Are we really, are we really surprised? Why? Why should we be surprised? I know for some of us we would say, how can a mom do that to their kids? Can I share this with you? It's because some heart was hardened. You'd be surprised what you'll do when you have a hardened heart. Is it a surprise when you look at Moms and dads, and I want to know where dad is with these Kardashian girls. Some, some dad needs to show up with a big blanket someday to their reality show. Lady Gaga and Britney Spears and Katy Perry all do what they do. And we know the songs and we'll sing the songs. And, and, and then we come to the house of God and we say, Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. Can you just quit singing lies? Well, you say, Pastor, you're going to run some off today. You know what? Hardened hearts have to be addressed. We have desensitized ourselves to God. We're grasping. Folks, we are grasping for any kind of feeling we can get. It's because we've lost that love and feeling. We no longer understand that God not only loves us, but that He empowers us to love Him back in a way that's befitting the King. But because we've lost that, we're trying to find love and experience and feeling any way, anywhere, anyhow we can all around us. So we've lost the loving feeling. And now we're looking for love in all the wrong places. Let me go and I'll keep giving you some songs here this morning. I'll... But here's the good news. The good news is, is that God, I believe, wants to extend His grace to you still. Scripture says that God is not slack concerning His promises, which means He's not slow. He no longer wants anyone to perish. He's not out to see you perish, but that you would come to repentance. But the question is, you've got to begin to see the need for this. And, and, and really, God is sovereign, yes. His grace is extended. It's His business, yes. He initiates, yes. But I have a responsibility. I have a responsibility as to whether I'm going to keep cutting that off or whether I'm going to embrace that in my life. Now, how does a person get to this place? This is the part I really want you to write down. This is going to be a real technical part here. But it's... This is the part that you won't get from a psychologist or a psychiatrist. You won't get it from your medical doctor. I'm going to walk you through real quick, spiritually, what happens to people that lead them to a place of reprobate mind or of hard-heartedness. See, if you can catch this early, you can stop it from happening. But the problem is the enemy is so slick and he blinds us that we start moving down these roads and all of a sudden we wake up one morning and we're in jail or we're in prison or we're in trouble or something's gone wrong and we say to ourselves, how did I get here? Well, I'm fixing to show you how you got there. How you began to, to resist the grace of God. I've heard people say this for years. In fact, I've heard parents say this. They said, you know, you know, too much church and too much preaching. You know, it can kind of make make young people hard. And, and, and so what happens is, is we feel like they need a break from the Word of God in order that we don't get hard or that we don't get stale. Can I just, can I just say this to you? That is a lie. If you'll go to the parable of the sower, and, and when, when, the, when the sower was sowing seed, which we know to be the Word of God, and he was sowing it in different areas, when he sowed it on the hard ground, it wasn't the seed that made the ground hard. Are you following me? 
that ground was hard long before the seed got there. So, so, so hearing too much gospel isn't going to make anybody hard. In fact, getting under the word will make you soft. See, that's the lie of the enemy. The lie of the enemy is, well, we don't want to do church too much or I'll get too fanatical, radical, and I'll probably get hardened and familiar. That's just lies going on in your mind. Kids can't get too much church. If they get too much church, then I challenge you, they're probably getting too much school. Yeah, TVs, video games. Come on, I'll take it on right now. We'll send them off to Babylon for hours and hours and hours a week, but God forbid two hours a week. I'm just saying that. I'll never say it again. But you wonder why they're not soft. It's because they've got Babylonian spirits hitting them for umpteen hours and they got a chance to get God's grace in them. A couple just by sitting under the Word and some other things we'll mention later. But... But the key to hardness is not too much gospel. The key to hardness, it says here in Hebrews 3.13, post it again, guys. Hebrews 3.13, it says, exhort one another daily while it is called today. Lest any of you become hardened through what? How do you become hardened? Come on, say it. How do you become hardened? Okay, I want you to get this. That's how you get hardened. Through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, let me give you the steps to this. I'm going to go through this fast. Get your pens out. You'll want, you'll want this later. Let's say, just for the sake of argument, that some person is being confronted by a temptation. Some temptation has come into your life. And you're being confronted with a temptation. Let's go down the steps here as to how it begins to work in a person's spirit and psyche. First, Number one, there is natural curiosity. Now, hear me when I say this. Temptation is not wrong. Temptation will come. Every one of us in this room, including me, are going to be faced with temptations. Temptation is not wrong. It's what you do with it. It was Luther, I think, who had the best analogy. He said, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head. That's temptation. It's the bird flying over your head. But he said, you can stop a bird from making a nest in your hair. Kids, for instance, I'll just use young people, this generation. Kids are naturally curious, right? I mean, I mean, you just think about it as they grow up from being very little to older. I mean, you go through these different phases. They have, they have questions and questions and questions. And, 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 and they want to know about body parts. And they want to know where babies come from. And, and, and they want to know how they got there. And, and they want to know why I can't watch that and why this happens. And, and, and so, hear me, curiosity is a part of the human condition. All of us are naturally curious. And that's what temptation does. It arouses your curiosity. That's temptation. My curiosity is aroused. Number two, the awakening of the conscience. Now, once a temptation comes, the conscience is awakened. And I call this, I call the conscience our alarm system. It's called the conscience, but it's your alarm system. Now, if your alarm system is malfunctioning, Think about this. If your alarm system is malfunctioning, then when a temptation comes, what happens is there's no alarm that goes off in the inside, and so you immediately embrace the temptation. But the conscience is what says, alarm, alarm, alarm. And so that's why it's so important you don't sear your conscience. Because if you sear your conscience, what happens is that which is wrong suddenly seems to be right because your alarm system has malfunctioned. And so the alarm system goes off. And God put that alarm system, by the way, inside of us. And, and what happens is if your alarm system is working right, instantly the question comes up inside of you, is this something I should do or not? Is this something I should do or not? Temptation, curiosity, awakening of the conscience. Should I do this or should I not do this? Number three. Then you begin to question God's direction. As you'll recall, when Eve was in the garden with the serpent, the snake started having her question God. She, she was curious about this tree that she wasn't supposed to partake of. The conscience was awakened because she was solicited to eat of the tree. And now the enemy begins to question or put questions inside of her as to what God would think about all of this. And he goes like this, well, you've got two eyes, you tell me. That's what the enemy basically says. He says, it looks good, doesn't it? 
It'll make you like the Lord. What's wrong with that? He's trying to get you to be more like him anyway. And he begins to have her question God's direction. And that's what happens inside of us when the alarm system is screwed up because we start saying, well, what's the everybody is doing it. Doesn't seem to hurt my friend at school. They seem to be doing it. Doesn't seem like it's any much different than what my folks tell me their testimony was all about. I don't see. And you begin to question God's direction. Now, you still haven't sinned. But internally, you're now in negotiations. Are you following me? Number four, what happens then? Your focus turns from the spiritual to the sensual. Your eyes begin to see what it is that you're now looking at, the temptation. And what happens is, is that now that temptation looks more pleasurable than obedience. Because that's what happened to Eve, was it not? She looked at it, and it was good to look at. And suddenly you're looking at what it is that's in front of you, and the pleasure of what's in front of you begins to trump God's voice and the promises of God. You begin to believe that the pleasure outweighs the restriction. Your sense, your senses, which were already powerful, are beginning to pull you in this direction. Folks, the Bible says there is pleasure in sin for a season. Sure it is. You go out and have an adulterous affair or enter into a fornication or something like that. And I, yeah, I'll just tell it straight up. It's fun for a season. Until finally you hear, if you're a girl, that perhaps you're pregnant. Or if you're a boy, you've contracted an STD or it's ruined your life or, or whatever the case may be. And then all of a sudden, you find out the deceitfulness of sin. It pleasured you for a moment... And it fulfilled your senses. But now all of a sudden, you're being racked. The enemy's not fair. He will drag you into this telling you it's pleasurable. And then as soon as you're in it, he will laden you with guilt. He isn't fair. He isn't right. He isn't anything. And that's exactly what... And your focus, your focus got shifted. You lose your moral compass. It begins to point you in another direction. Then what happens? Number five, there's a violation of the conscience. See, because when you're at that moment and you're right there on the brink of partaking of the fruit, when you're right on the brink of entering into the sin, what happens is, is that your alarm system, if it's still working, is going, warning, 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 warning. How often have I heard from people after their life has crashed and they would say to me, I knew it was wrong, I knew it was wrong, and I even knew I was going to get caught. Isn't that amazing? At the time, it didn't seem to matter. But yet internally, they knew that there was something that was kicking off a warning sign. And any time you ignore your conscience, hear me, this is important. It is sin. James 4.17 posted, it's in the scripture. It says, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's what? So you're saying, well, I don't see anywhere in the Bible I can't do this. Folks, if you're going to have a relationship with the Lord, you've got to understand, you're right, you're not under law. You're right. You're not under the law. You're under him. The author of the law. Which now he has opportunity to write on your heart what's right and what's wrong. Not that he trumps himself. In other words, he's not going to let you out of what all he already has codified. But simply saying, in my life, he's already told me that there are certain television shows. There are certain movies. There are certain places. There are certain activities that's just off limits. It's called a conviction. But when your conscience is seared, you no longer, no longer have the ability to get a conviction. You're, you're not even sure you're going to buy into this. And so you violate that conscience. Do you understand right now? I could, I could go see a movie right now. For me, I could go see a movie. Just giving you an example. That I'm quite sure some of you would go and not think twice about. And, it's, and again, I'm, this is no judgment, no reflection. I'm not saying that you have to accept my convictions. I, I want to I make that clear because I don't, I don't want to communicate something wrong. But can I tell you that, that there could be two people sitting there watching the same film on a big screen and one of them could be highly convicted by God. And the other one will go, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Now, I don't know that God has talked to them about that or not. My... I'm not trying to be the Holy Spirit in people's lives. I'm not saying you ought to follow me. I'm just simply saying this. If you've seared off your conscience, at what point does he get to talk to you? 
And then finally, what happens is that awakening of guilt. Now, there's going to be condemnation, obviously, because the enemy is going to beat the fire out of you. But there's also going to be appropriate conviction if, if the conscience is still working correctly. It's the difference between good guilt and bad guilt. Good guilt is when you've done something that has grieved God and you feel bad about it. Hallelujah. You ought to jump up and down and say, he hadn't left me. Praise God. What's scary is we got people who are grieving God and they don't feel a thing. What's the big deal? I'm under grace. He loves me. Uh, uh. Yeah, he gives me sloppy wet kisses every morning. Guilt, listen to me, guilt always has to be dealt with in some form or fashion. And if you don't deal with guilt, what happens is it becomes suppressed. And in that suppression, you begin to harden. Now, the reason your psychologist won't tell you this is because they don't believe any guilt's good. They're trying to get you out of guilt when you're violating your conscience. And then finally, number seven is the response. And this is, this is important because the response, we have two possibilities. There are two possibilities when we get to the response. Have you followed me through all this now? Is everybody with me? Say amen. Okay, now we're to response. You've gone through this whole scenario or someone you know, maybe someone in your family, your young person, your child, or something's going on, you yourself. There are two things that must happen at this point. Really only two possibilities. Number one is you repent and you return immediately. You can't live under the burden or the shame or the guilt and you need the forgiveness and the cleansing of God and, and you need that second chance. And can I just say, praise God, He is the God of a second, third, 25th, 50th chance. I'm glad for that. And so you've got to repent and return and you've got to be genuine in this. You can't play games with this because I'm telling you what happens is we play games in this area and it hardens us to reality, spiritual reality. So you can repent and return. Or the second possibility is what people do is they enter into what I call incomplete repentance. Say, so, well, what's incomplete repentance? Well, I'm just going to share with you real quickly. Number one is you begin to fake your spiritual condition. I don't want to say this. You're guilty, but you're guilty more because you got caught, not because you grieved God. That's most of our problems. We go on with life. Doing our own thing if it weren't for the fact we got caught and maybe disappointed people. But you got to realize that when, when we turn, we're turning to God. We've grieved God. It's not just we got caught. It's not just that our life's bad. It's not just that our marriage is struggling. It's not just that my parents are upset at me or whatever it is. It, I mean, that may be true. Those are the repercussions of sin. It says the way of the transgressor is hard. But we've got to get back to our spiritual system. Folks, there is a God that I will stand before one day and I really don't want to irritate Him. I want to please Him. I want to walk in His ways. And He wants the best for me. But what happens is, is that we begin to fake our spiritual condition. You just appear like everything is fine and you just keep doing the right stuff. Like I said, we keep coming down front. We keep worshiping God. You say amen. You do spiritual things. You stand there. Everybody's looking at you. I know how it works. I know how it works in the youth group even. I know when they come down and they do this, they're looking good for you, mom and dad. That's what I did. I went to an altar and I'd cry my eyes out and I'd look good to everyone else, but my heart was still far from God. Because we want to fake our way thinking we can fake Him out. You say, I've never heard this on a Sunday morning. That's our problem in America. We're too busy giving you ten steps to like your neighbor. Well, you won't grow anything that way. I'm not looking to grow more High knees in seats. I'm looking to see revival come to the church again. Come on. That's our, that's our, our goals. You fake your condition. Secondly, you spiritually justify. That's another incomplete repentance. You justify your sin. Well, everyone does it. I know they're doing it. And it seems like they get away from it. Listen, you're not going to point in the front of God at someone and say, how about them, Lord? The Lord's going to say, I'm with you right now. 
I've heard people say, well, God understands. He understands my needs. He understands my situation. He understands. He understands all of this. Yeah, God understands. He understands better than you think because he sent his son to incarnate himself in human flesh so he could understand everything there was about us from a very personal standpoint. And the Bible says that Jesus, whom yet was tempted but without sin, prevailed in order that when his spirit comes inside of us, we become more than conquerors. We become triumphant in all things. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I'm here to tell you when I am confronted with a temptation, there is no sin that grace cannot help me overcome and get to victory on the other side. I believe that. I preach victory here. There's no devil, no sin, no nothing that can stand in the way of God's grace in my life. His grace is sufficient for me. When I'm weak, He is strong. Greater is He that is in me than he that's in the world. I'm not justifying my way through it. I'm trying to find a way to access the grace of God to prevail my way through it. And then number three, what happens is incomplete repentance. There's what I call argumentation and escalation. What happens is a person begins to argue in behalf of the lie. That's exactly what Paul said in Romans chapter 1 with regards to men giving themselves to men and women giving themselves to women. He said the day will come when they will exchange the truth of God for a lie. And the day will come, he says, that they will argue in order to justify the lie. It happens all the time. I listen to men who leave their families for some cute little thing that they think is going to be so much better and life will be so much better and they will justify it by a lie. Let me tell you, this is my view. I love my wife and my heart is totally for her and we've got the best years we've ever had together. But we've already looked at each other and said this. We've spent 29 years training each other. We ain't doing this again. We ain't doing it again. I ain't starting all over with somebody else because I'm here to tell you whatever the package is, it wears out after a while. Argumentation. Escalation. What happens is when you, you justify, you, you begin to exchange, and then it becomes more and more easily implemented, the lie in your life. If a person goes through this process enough times, they become hardened. Listen to me. You become hardened and blindness sets in. And what happens is, is that you can't sense the presence of God if he were sitting next to you going, listen to me, listen to me. You don't feel anything anymore. So what do you do? You go somewhere where we flash a bunch of lights and we get a good cord wrist and we modulate and we tell you it's the Holy Ghost and we get everybody clapping because we want that love and feeling to get into you again. And I'm telling you, it may communicate and have its place, but we've got to get back to where we sense God again. we got to sense God again. These flashing lights are not going to get you through this week. These guys did a great set this morning, and I appreciate excellence. But I'm here to tell you a great worship set doesn't get you through the week. It's when you get a sense of the presence of God in your heart, and it's melted you like wax before the Lord, and you sense an otherworldly thing going on inside of you that lifts you up and that causes you to, to be at a high place. Are you still subject to the issues of the world? Sure you are. But it's as, if, it's as if there's another power working in you and through you. You say, well, how, how do I get soft again then, Pastor? Help me, help me, help me. Listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you just a couple of things real super fast, this fast. Number one is, I, I just call it fellowship. You've got to get around people consistently who want the things of God. If you are around spiritual deadheads all the time, you're going to end up being a deadhead. Now, you may have a missionary call to go into places to win people and draw people, and I understand that, and all of us do. But do you understand Jesus spent time with people that he knew were passionate about the mission and the call and the vision and the kingdom? And I'm not saying that he would have been depleted necessarily, but I know those guys, when they went out, they had to come back. And they had to get renewed, and, and you get renewed through fellowship. There are things that are imparted to you just as you rub shoulders with the saints. You're around passionate people and suddenly passion spills off of them and gets on you. It, it, it's just something, 
There's just something, you know, it's like a disease, a passion disease gets on you. Just out of fellowship. Hang around this place for a while. You'll get passionate about the things of God. Secondly, faithful. How do you get soft again? Well, you need to be faithful to some things. Faithful to the word. The Bible says that the word of God washes us and softens our soil. All of us experience tough moments, but, but that's when faithful comes in handy. Are you following me? I mean, faithful doesn't mean anything when you're feeling good and everything's going great. But when you're being challenged, that's when faithful comes in handy. It's like a marriage. It's great when you're married and you're looking at your wife or you're looking at your husband and, and the package looks great and, and they're saying the right stuff and, 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 and she's wooing you and, 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 and he's, you know, he's saying all the nice things. And, oh, it's, isn't that wonderful when it works that way? I'm going to just give you a premarital counseling session right now. There are days you don't want to be married. Surprise! I know all the guys are going, I want to laugh, but I don't know if I better laugh too hard on this one. <laughs> Wives are going, don't you laugh too loud on that. Come on now. We all, we're all the same. There are days we don't want to be married. Why do we stay married? Because faithful pays off. Faithful pays off. Number three, fervency. The Laodicean church was told by the Lord. He said this. He said, he said, get zealous and repent. He looked at them. He didn't say, he didn't say stay around for a two-hour worship set and, and, and we're going to see if we can get your zealousness and your passion back. He didn't say that. He looked at the Laodicean church and this is directly, he said, you get zealous. Get passionate. You can get passionate. Just decide you want to be passionate. Just get up in the morning and say, I'm, I'm just I'm deciding I'm making a choice. I'm going to get my fervency back this morning. Are you really subject to every breeze of your circumstances and the condition of your world? I think not. Only thing I'm subject to is the breezes of the spirit. And his voice and dealings in my life. And I choose to exempt myself from the power of my circumstances. And I choose to get my fervency back. And then finally, if, you, if you're having a tough time in that area, just go on a fast. I'm not kidding when I look at young people who are going back to school. And some of you just need to cut lunch out and just fast your way through to victory. I know parents are going, oh, but their nutrition. Oh, but their spiritual condition. We got to start thinking different, man. We're worried about whether or not they're going to go to some highfalutin college. And, and I'm not sure some are making it into the kingdom. Aren't you glad I'm not God? You can say amen. I know you want to. Amen. Amen. But sometimes we just got to just, just put the fork down, push the plate away and say, Lord, I'm not eating till I get a sense of your presence back in my life. I'm not waiting till pastor calls a fast. I'm not waiting for January and we do our 21 day fast. I'm not waiting for the next solemn assembly. I can't go any longer without you. I'm not going to eat until you show up again. I will assure you, God will show up. Yes, he will. I'm going to end with this. How many of you know that I have a dog by the name of Pugin? If you follow on Facebook, you get Pugin updates. Pugin, Pugin was only supposed to be about six pounds. Pugin's 16 pounds. But he's a pretty dog. We love him. Pika Palm, Pekingese and Pomeranian. We love him. Isn't it amazing about animals? Those of you that have animals, is, is it not amazing? Is it not amazing that they become like family members? I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. You love them more than some of your family members. I mean, let's just be honest. There are certain family members, if you had a choice and you were on a sinking ship and you had that animal and that family member, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you'd figure out a way to take that animal with you. 
That's how I am, man. I'm, I'm a little like that myself. I, that, that, that dog. But, you know, they give you unconditional love, don't they? they just, they're just they're unconditional. Well, you've heard the Pugin stories. He gets into messes. Early in his life, he got his head twisted in a magazine rack that nearly choked him off and killed him. And I remember when we had to get him, we got a hold of him. Tyler and Trace were holding him. And, 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 and you know, they're praying in tongues and they're, they're doing it. And, and, and God, I'm not joking. It was wrought iron thing that, that I had to, to, to literally pull. I believe I was empowered by the Lord at that moment and pulled that thing. We got his head out, praise God. And wasn't hurt or anything like that. And you're just going, oh, sweet Jesus. I almost lost the dog. A couple, couple weeks ago, I guess it's been now. Um, he, uh, he went outside for his last little outing and, uh, came back in and I'm going to tell this short and to the point, but he came back in and in just a few moments he was sitting by the chair and, and Kalen noticed he was lethargic. I mean, super lethargic and it, it, we could just tell it he wasn't himself. And so, um, you know, we, we grabbed him and we couldn't shake him into, into sort of cognizance. And, and he has a little squeaky ball that he goes berserk over. It doesn't matter what time of the day or night he goes berserk. And so we're squeezing the ball and he, he, is, he is out of it. We found out later he had some kind of seizure. But we, we, we rushed him out of the house. It was late at night. We had to go to the emergency vet. He, he laid him in our lap. And whenever he goes for a car ride, Pugin loves car rides. And I mean, he's a nut in the car for the first 30 minutes. I mean, he's just crazed because he loves car rides. But he just, he just plopped down in my lap. I mean, it looked like his eyes were closing. And at the time, we didn't know what was going on. And we thought he was dying. We didn't know if he ate something outside. We didn't know if somehow, you know, just something happened. Just biologically, we didn't know. But I'm telling you, we are rushing to the emergency room. And, 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 and we are on high alert. And I mean everybody, everybody in the car. We're praying in the Spirit. Oh, God, heal Pugin, help Pugin. I mean, it's just the, as you think back to it, now you're saying to yourself, it's a dog, it's a dog, but there's something in your heart that's just, and, and you're driving him there. And about when we got there, he, he started to get a little bit more cognizant and, 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 and he sneezed. And I think he sneezed his way out of his seizure. But, but anyway, he got checked over and, and he seemed to be okay. So we went home. And while we were home, we hadn't been there more than about 30 minutes again. Then we looked at his face and, and there was a place on his nose up into his eye and it was swelling up. I mean, it was noticeably swollen. Oh my Lord, what's going on now? So we gather him up again and we head off to the vet emergency room because this is, understand who this is. Don't look at me like I'm a nut. Some of you, some of you are going, I'd have done the same thing. I'd have done the same thing. And so we were there again and they looked at him and apparently he'd gotten into some fire ants is what we finally figured out. And a fire ant had bit him and he had an allergic reaction and got him on a steroid, put a little Benadryl in his system. And, and, and I'm glad to be able to report this morning that Pugin is in fine shape. He still eats off our table. He still, he still, clo you know, he controls the whole house. So, but I started to think about that. I just was, I was, I was reflecting on all that because let me tell you something, you're holding this dog and, and, and it, you're going through this trauma and all that kicks in to gear for a dog. A dog. I mean, we're praying in the spirit. I don't know that I've ever heard Caitlin pray in the spirit. I could hear her in the back seat praying in the Holy Ghost. And, and we were all of us were concerned about this, this animal and, and, and our hearts. Listen to me. And some of you are right there with me. Our hearts, when we look at this animal, are just soft and they're tender and, and we can't imagine uh, this harm coming to them. Can I just share this with you? We're soft in our hearts about animals, but we're not soft in our heart towards the lamb that was once slain before the foundation of the world. We're not soft toward him anymore. I've often wondered, do I have to bring an animal in here and kill it in order to get a response? Because I'd have Peter show up and I'd have some of you come and you'd Fill my email box up and call me and say, how dare you do that to an animal? I'm looking at us as a people and I love you. How dare we do this to the one true and living God? Ah, we don't have Sunday night service anymore, so you get Sunday night messages on Sunday morning. But we're, we're, we're in a time period in America that if we don't get our hearts soft towards God again, 
Folks, we're going to be the generation that's going to see what we hoped we'd never see. The issue isn't what is God's will. The issue is what is our heart. God's waiting for soft hearts. He's wanting to melt hearts even this morning. He, he, he wants to do that. But, but the question is, will you let him do that? Will, will you let him soften your heart? You're just so you're saying, well, I've had to look at hypocrisy in my home. I've had to I've had to look at inconsistencies of people who said they were Christians. I've seen this and that. Listen, I don't care what you've seen. You've not seen probably more than I've seen. And I've seen about as gross and as twisted and dysfunctional stuff as you can imagine. And I still love God and I want everything he's got. Don't you blame. Don't you blame God for people's humanity. Come on, it's it's between you and him soft heart. You know what? That's what God's doing in our church. Legacy. If, if we're going to have soft hearts towards God. And you know, I know I, I pray in the hard hearted come, but when they come, there's going to be, there's going to be an ocean of God's grace. That's going to help them if they want that to happen. To melt their hearts. And come right into his presence. There's some here today. I'm telling you, this is your moment. This is your moment. I know of a, I know of a man who said that he was in a backslidden condition. He said he was, he was not serving God and he was in the hospital and the Lord gave him a vision. And he said in this vision, there were these curtains that were closing in front of his eyes. And he said the Holy Spirit spoke to him, called his name out and said, this is your moment because if you don't respond to me this moment, he goes, I, I, I'm just not going to mess with it anymore. You can say, I don't know that I believe that. You can believe what you want. It's his testimony. He said and what scared him was not so much that, that he lived in sin and the potentialities of hell or whatever it was that he thought was so overwhelming. He said what really scared him was is that he'd reached the place where he'd hardened himself to where God said, if you want it your way, I'll let you have it. If you want it your way, don't, don't worry, he'll let you have it. He'll let you have it. Don't want it your way. Want it God's way. I guarantee you, you'll never regret saying yes to him and embracing grace. Would you stand right now?